Welcome, 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 welcome. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Sketch Therapist podcast. It's the podcast that improves your sketch life. I'm your host, Roisin Curie, and today I'm going to tell you a little bit about a sketch that didn't go so well, followed by a sketch that went rather better. I hope you enjoy it. Well, I guess not all not all sketches go as well as you might like. Um, I was in a pub on Friday and I was tucked away into the corner and I was getting on my sketch, which didn't turn out at all, although I still have hopes for it and I'll explain why in a second. And whilst I was enjoying painting my coffee and the little tulip that lent over it, it was all going okay, I suppose. But I didn't really think too much in, before I started the sketch about how my composition was going to go. I just wanted to get out of the crazy, horrible weather that was howling outside. A gale was blowing and the rain was coming down and horrible freezing needles of icy water. And I just need to get out of that horribleness. So I ended up in one of my favourite pubs on the corner of Cross Street and High Street. Um, or Shop Street. And it was it's a lovely pub. It's very, very cosy. So three people came to sit at the table next to me. There was a lady and there was two gents. And one of the gents was very quiet. And one of the gentlemen was very, very chatty and loquacious. I think that's the word, isn't it? Loquacious, I think. And he wanted to talk all about the horrible things that had happened to him in terms of his body falling to pieces. So we heard all about his his pains and his ailments and his 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 overall terrible, terrible state. It went on for a very long time. And it, it struck me that it was as if he were recounting a saga and they were around a, an open fire. I suppose they kind of were around an open fire because we were in a pub um, and they were supping away at their glasses of wine and their soup and so on. But yes, we were treated to a very, very long and detailed explanation of his ailments. And it was said in a very poetic way. It was terribly, terribly dull and excruciating to listen to. But it was it was delivered in a beautiful, uh, mellifluous, beautiful mellifluous tones. And his voice was modulated and he had punchlines and he had he had uh, crescendos um, and so on. And he was clearly really, really into telling his companions all about his ailments and they listened very politely. And then it was the lady's turn eventually. I thought, you know, he had a good 15 minutes talking about his visits to the doctor and the outcome and so on. And then it was the lady's turn and she talked a little bit about how she was still trying to get over the flu and it was taking a very long time. And he cut her short and said, now we all know each other's ailments. Let's move on to jollier things. And I thought, hang on a second. You didn't give that lady a fair go at it. Um, and so she didn't, but she was very gracious and she didn't press and say, look, I haven't had a chance to talk about what's wrong with me. That's the sort of thing I would do, by the way. But she didn't. She was very gracious. And so they moved on to other things. And unfortunately, other things turned out to be more complaints. This time it was about parents and how they give in to every whim of their children these days and how they must compensate. They must evidently be compensating for n never being with their children because they're always at work. And so therefore they uh, they just buy them whatever they want. They buy them all the latest gadgets and if they lose their coat, they have another one bought by the same afternoon and so on. And they were full of opprobrium for uh, parents, the parents nowadays. They're just terrible. 
And the woman spoke up. She was a lady in her 70s and she spoke up. She said, excuse me. She said, I have to speak up here as a woman. I can tell you that it is a very difficult job to try and raise children and be an artist. She was clearly um, an artist. They all were, I think. And uh, she said, "Um, as you know, I raised my children on my own from the time they were very young. And I can tell you that... I had absolutely zero energy left after trying to bring up my children to do any art. That's just the way it was. And I thought, my goodness, well done, lady, for standing up for 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 the role of a female. But no, the man insisted. He was quiet for a couple of seconds, but then he went back to his theme and went back to how uh, with two parents working, children didn't have a hope these days. I thought, well, wasn't it nice for you that back in your day of rearing children, if you had any, you were able to you were able to raise your children without having to have more than one salary. Because nowadays, I'm afraid, in Ireland anyway, you need to have either one enormous salary or you need to have two above average ones. Otherwise, things are just too tight. So all this talk of of complaint and criticism and misery and ailments put me in a bad mood. So I did my best with the sketch and it didn't really work. Eventually, I painted a sketch of the man who was doing the most complaining but he was quite he had quite a a shiny pale pink um sort of complexion um but when i did try to reproduce that in my sketchbook it just looked like i was painting him the color of strawberry ice cream so there was no way i could allow him to see it if he asked but luckily he wasn't interested the lady however was interested and she said it's so nice to see you painting how lovely and uh and I hid the book. She didn't see me hide it, but I hid it. I put it under the table because it wasn't dry yet. So I couldn't snap it shut and throw it into my into my bag. I had to leave it open for a few minutes. So I, I left it open and stood it on the floor next to the, the leg of the table. And I had another book in my bag. And uh, I said, well, you're most welcome to have a look. It was a recently completed sketchbook. And she was delighted and she looked through it and she was extremely polite and gracious. And she was enchanted to see all these everyday uh, subjects being made gorgeous through sketching. Um, She did try to show the gentleman who was the chatty one, but he had no interest at all. Um, And it made me think, Okay, here I am. It's I'm speaking from a luxury of my 50s. Is this what I'm looking forward to? Am I going to be full of complaints and moans about what's wrong with me when I get to my 70s? Because I don't want that to happen. I don't want to turn into a complaints bore. I really don't. Is that what I do here, actually? Now that I think of it, (laughs) do I spend all my time complaining? No, I don't. This 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 podcast is about how to find the therapy. It's not about what's wrong. It's about how to find the therapy, or at least it's supposed to be anyway. Probably sometimes I go off on a bit of a rant, but I don't want to. I want to I want to keep it upbeat and positive and talk about what's how to make it all come good and how to make it better. So there you go. That was a sketch that didn't go so well. Um, and I was left with a feeling of discontent afterwards because my sketch wasn't great, to be honest. Although what I'm going to do, I'll tell you what I'm going to do to try and make it better because it's in my sketchbook now. There is a large white area to the left that has nothing in it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to cover it in speech bubbles and I'm going to try and record as accurate as I, ac- accurately as possible the man's moans and complaints. And uh, at least that way, everybody can read them. And then he'll get sympathy from the whole world. The next day, I did another sketch and it went really well. And I was in a great mood. So there you go. You can't win them all. But if you win most of them, you're doing pretty okay. 
Well, the day after my very unsatisfactory sketch with that gentleman who complained and complained and complained, I was rather luckier. I drove down to Kinvara, the little village that's a few miles down the road from where I live in County Galway. And I parked up on the street and I found that there was a lovely view. It's very simple. It was just literally a view of the street rising up the hill and twisting away from me. And on the left, we had some green buildings, kind of a dark forest green. And we had some creamy buildings and they were three storey high, each of these buildings. And they had pitched roofs and chimney stacks with chimney pots sticking out the top. And on the right, we had a pink building, pale pink. And we had a, a yellow building with some green uh, shop front at the bottom. And again, they were three storey. So they were very, very tall and very, very skinny because they were seen in sharp perspective. And I figured that would be a really nice little uh, subject, a nice little composition for the students and for myself, really, because I always start with what I like first. And then I go on to do I think the students would get a kick out of it as well. And they always love to learn different aspects of drawing perspective. So I do my best to bring them something that is kind of doable. And in the end, it was a challenge for them, but they all did a really good job. Um, it does take a little bit of practice, but they all did a, a good job. So what the thing about perspective is you can go to a book like Stephanie Bowers. Uh, what is it? The Urban Sketching Handbook Perspective Techniques or Techniques in Perspective. I'm not sure um, the exact title, but it's one of it's. I was going to say one of the best books I've read on perspective. It's actually the best book I read on perspective. Not that I've met, read many because I'm a little bit lazy when it comes to academic study in art. But I did have a look at Stephanie's book. I did have a, in fact, I read it from cover to cover and it really is excellent. It really, really is excellent. So I highly recommend that if you want to take a, a more academic um, nuts and bolts approach to perspective, which is probably the best way to go about it. But if you're a little bit on the lazy side and if you're a little bit on the unstructured side, which I am, I'm very unstructured when it comes to art, um, then I just like to wing it, really. I like to wing it. And I don't exactly wing it. I don't exactly wing it. I'm very careful with my angles. Now, a good way to determine your angles, because a lot of people, including myself, find it difficult to decide the exact slope of what they're looking at is. Because don't forget, you're looking at three dimensions and you're trying to you're trying to sort of translate it onto a two dimensional page. And sometimes you're just looking and you're like, what direction is that? And you don't know whether you're looking forward or sideways or back or what on earth you're looking at. So one technique that is known and tried and tested to be a really good technique is to imagine that if that line that you're looking at was on the face of a clock, what time would it read? So we did that during class on Saturday. We actually, uh, I grabbed a piece of, piece of rough paper and I drew a circle and then I put the slopes of the roofs of the houses that I was drawing onto the front of the clock face. I kind of made a little mock-up of it and you could very quickly see what time they would be telling. And in that way, you, when you're drawing your own drawing, you can relate it much more easily. So I sometimes do that. I sometimes use the imaginary clock face to decide what slope my lines are at. Most of the time I sort of make a good stab at it, but it certainly did help at the beginning when I was getting used to those slopes. So I like to start at a central point or the middle of a part that I particularly like. And on the, in this case, I started at the chimney stack at the very top of the left hand side of the picture. And then I just build it up from there and I use each little point 
that I've just drawn as a reference point for the next line I'm going to draw. So in other words, I draw a chimney stack, I draw the little bit of the side which equates to the front of it seen from the side. And then I might say, okay, the roof pitch, mm, right, it starts about halfway up that chimney stack and it slopes in X degrees, whatever that might be. And then you do the same for the little bit of the um, the gables of the roof. What are they called? The barges, the slopey bit, the roof pitch. And you try and guess or try to make a pretty good guesstimate on what, what slope the roof is at. And then you do the roof eaves and maybe the gutter. And if the roof has an overhang a little bit, then you're going to go back a little bit to start dropping your vertical for the front of the building. I like to count the amount of windows. I tell you why I do that, because you'll be very tempted to do the windows wider than they actually should be. So if you count them and go, OK, I'm going to have to fit five windows in there. Hmm. OK, they're going to have to be pretty thin. Then that's a good way to start yourself off. And as I did each window, I made sure that the top of each window matched the slope of the eaves of the roof just above it. So it's parallel to that, the top of each window. Even if you only see a little skinny little bit of the width of the window, you still make that slope parallel to the slope of the roof. And as you go through the drawing, generally speaking, you're going to make the line parallel. Whatever lines you're doing, you're going to make them parallel. And we're talking about your perspective lines. In other words, not your verticals. They don't they don't slope. Just your the lines that would be horizontal if you're looking at them uh, face on. They're going to be parallel to the line just above or just below. And when I say parallel, they're actually not quite parallel, but they're very close to parallel because they swivel. They swivel as you. they're very steep at the top. They're horizontal at eye level and then they swing through the other direction below eye level. So if you've got your eye level as being horizontal, everything else is more or less in relation to that horizontal uh, eye level. So as the lines leave your eye level and they go upwards, they slope, slope a little bit and they slope more and more and more as you go further and further from the, from the eye level. And the converse is true. As you go below eye level, they slope in the other direction more and more and more until they're quite steep by the time you're looking well below eye level. Um, and don't forget that all your little vertical components, your windows and so on, um, and your distances between vertical points, they all get narrower and narrower, those distances do, the further the verticals are from you. And in that way, they look like they're evenly spaced. So it does take a little bit of mental gymnastics to do um, a drawing in perspective without any rules because you do have to keep on your toes you do have to override your brain trying to tell you to do things a different way and you have to just observe really really well and do all these little micro measurements micro measurements by eye as you go along now you will find I'll warrant that it's a lot of fun to do this once you get into the swing of it it can be a lot of fun so have patience and take it step by step and find yourself a street, park up, put something on the radio, put something, put kind of, I don't know, podcast, put me on, encouraging you, telling you that, you know, this is fun and you'll get used to it and you'll get better at it uh, and bring all your little, you know, pens and paints and all the rest of it and get stuck in. Now, if you want to, you can do it in pencil first and you can do all these little slopey lines by pencil if you want and rub them out afterwards. And you can do a vanishing point as well if you want. I just don't want to. 
So the only reason I don't want to is because I don't like pencil lines all over my sketches. I don't like rubbing them out. I never wait long enough for the ink to dry. So I tend to smudge my ink. Even even when I think it's bone dry, it tends not to be bone dry and I smudge it. Why else do I not like pencil? I don't know. I just prefer the look of a drawing that's grown from pen and pen alone. It does tend to be a little bit wobbly uh, in terms of lines all over the place. But I like that. I happen to like that. Oh, yeah. Something else with perspective. When you're doing your windows, each window comes with a little bit of a reveal. Um, so you've got the little you've got the little uh, setback of each window before you reach the glass. And when you're when you're so let's call the top part, the top part of the reveal, when you're on street level or when you're at your own eye level, say you're sitting in your car, if the windows are really high up in the building, well, you'll see a lot of the underside, won't you, of the reveal. And that gets less and less and less as you approach eye level. And then it, it, it changes as you go below eye level and you start seeing more of the surface of the window sill. Okay. Now, what doesn't change so much is the um, is the width of the little the vertical component of the side of the window sill of the window of the window frame. So the the little reveal um, that's the vertical part before you reach the window frame, the window pane. Sorry, I'm getting really confusing now. That doesn't really change its depth. Um, it gets smaller, of course, as you as as your building gets further away from you. Um, but just generally speaking, your windows get narrower. The space between them gets narrower. And what else can I tell you? I tend to leave my windows white, except at the bottom, just so that they look like the wind, the sun is reflecting on them. But that's not really part of drawing. That's more painting. That's kind of a different thing. I must do a whole class on windows, actually, because that's very, very useful. People enjoy that. What else can I tell you about perspective? Oh, don't forget your... Uh, street furniture and by which I mean is probably the wrong description but don't forget your telegraph poles your telephone wires I love putting telephone wires in they always look really cool and they always bring it to life so um, just remember to do them swiftly so you don't get a wobble with your line and do them with a very skinny line as well um, because do them with a thick line and they'll just look too clumsy so don't don't do that just use your skinny little line and hope that you have a nice tangle of wires at the top of some telegraph pole because they look so cool for some reason in an urban sketch. What else would I get you to do? Cars, of course. Now, cars on a main street are much more likely to get up and leave because the owner's too worried about getting clamped and leaving them for too long or getting a ticket or something like that. So you can leave them out if you want um, or you can just hope that another car will come along and take its place when the first one goes. Pedestrians, get pedestrians in if you can, uh, especially if you eyeball someone that looks like they're going to hang around for a while. That's definitely a good move just because it gives scale as well. Oh, and sky. Now, for the one that you're looking at in the illustration, that actually was well represented for the type of winter's day it was. So um, in terms of the texture, that's pretty much accurate. In terms of colour, it isn't. I chose the colour to match the colour of the shadows and any slate roofs and stuff like that, just a bit more dilute. And that was Payne's grey. But in, in terms of the texture, just blob, completely clean blobs of water onto your sky. Leave loads of, white, of wet bits, sorry, white bits of paper that are completely left dry. Because if it's dry, no water, no paint will go on and you'll end up with clouds. 
So what you want to do is do a few little white blobs and then make some very, very dilute sky colour, whatever sky colour you're going for. I quite like Payne's Grey mixed with a little bit of um, French Ultramarine. Make it very dilute. So lighten it up with some water on your palette and then just drop it in. Drop it into the wet patches on your sky and don't be tempted to smooth them out with your brush. Just let them sit there blotchily. OK, and when they're dry and have some faith and go off, and make a cup of tea. And when they're dry, they will look like the prettiest sky, the prettiest winter sky. So that is definitely a technique that you want to get really well versed with and practiced with. Don't forget that your buildings will probably have a sunnier side and a more gloomy side. So look out for a side that's got that's going to need an extra layer of colour on it when the time comes to paint. Uh, windows, I'll just briefly say, nothing to do with perspective really, but windows are very well represented by dark paints grey or paints grey mixed with phthalo blue on the bottom of the pane and then allowed to remain completely pure white on the top. So that works really well for that. Chimney pots, if you're lucky enough to have chimneys in your scene, don't leave them out. Chimney pots always look lovely. And that's it really. Can't think of any other pointers for perspective. All I can say is there's a couple of classes on perspective on my website, roisincurry.com. And you might give them a lash because once you get your hand in, once you get your eye in, you'll find that it's great fun. The challenge is really, really good fun. So give that a try. A word or two about the colours that I used for this particular sketch. Um, and when I've told you about the colours I've used in this sketch, I want to tell you about the colours in my paint box. I think I have mentioned it before in the pod, but what I would like to do is name the colours. Um, and again, I've done that before, but I'd like to add what I really find they're useful for. So let us try to talk a little bit about the colours I used and why I only used... I'm going to say four colours, but we'll say five, really, because one of them can be divided into two separate components. And the colours I used were Green Appetite Genuine by Daniel Smith. You could just as beautifully use Aquarius Green by Roman Schmel. They're both rich, lovely olive greens and both very granulating. So they're as pretty as a picture. So that's one of my greens. Then the yellow green, the sharp yellow green on the right hand building, I used yellow and I dropped in phthalo green and let them let them swirl together and make a wonderful lime green. But I didn't mix them on the page. I let them sit distinct on the page. Now, you do have to mix a bit of yellow in with a phthalo green because you will find that it's just too jady turquoisey if you don't mix it with a bit of yellow. So that is the yellow and the phthalo green making a lovely acidic lime, which counterbalances the sludginess of the green appetite genuine really nicely. The yellow I used for that was quinophthalone yellow by Roman Schmal and the phthalo green is by Roman Schmal as well. So that's we'll say two colours, even though the yellow green is made up of, of two colours in it by itself. Then for the slate roofs and for all the shadows, I use Payne's Grey. So that's easy enough. And anything metal, uh, anything black. So the shadows under the car, I darken them up as well. Then I used um, a very dilute Payne's Grey for the sky. So same again. And then I made a very light pink for the pinky building on the right. And I used Aquarius Red. Doesn't matter what red you use. Um, Aquarius Red is a beautiful, rich, pinky red by Roman Schmal. But you can use anything. You could use alizarin crimson. 
or you could use magenta, lots of different colors. The point is you're going to mix it with a kind of um, a burnt sienna to make a brick, kind of a brick color. OK, and for the bottom part of that pink building, you're going to do it quite concentrated. And for the top part, you're going to do it very dilute. And you can always add the tiniest touch of yellow if you want, just to take the coldness off the pink. But I wanted to go for a kind of a slightly warm blush pink rather than the um, strawberry ice cream pink that it actually is. OK, so keep it nice and dilute and it should work well enough for you. Oh, I also use Payne's Grey for black. So the um, black sign with Guinness written on it attached to the pink building and the food menu sign, I think it is, on the right hand side at the bottom. That was done in a concentrated Payne's Grey. And then finally, I used a kind of a rich orangey brick, same as the pinky red colour, actually, just that red Aquarius, uh, Aquarius red mixed with burnt sienna. And then I mixed that in different proportions for the chimney stacks, the brickwork and the chimney pots. And it all looked very, very nice. But the point about it was by sticking to just four main colours, I avoided a clash because you see, the thing about Kinvara is it is very richly coloured. In, in general, it has a very richly coloured building. So our street, I should say, it's a it's a typical rural Irish fishing village and the houses really, really shout out at you. So there you go. That's the colours I used. And uh, I do recommend if you're doing anything with an awful lot of colour in it, choose a few colours that are going to look absolutely smashing together. Maybe choose one or two colours that you actually can't get away with not using for two of your main colours and then just choose whatever you want. You could go close to the original colours that you see, but you don't have to. You can go completely off grid as well if you want. OK, so let's talk about the colours in my actual palette. And I'm going to tell you on row one, I have Payne's Grey. I have French, Ultra, sorry, Payne's Grey followed by Phthalo Blue, followed by French Ultramarine Light. And then I have Cherry Quinacridone Red and Aquarius Orange and Quinothalone Yellow. And then on the other side, I have Cypress Burnt Umber, Burnt Sienna Monte Amiata, Yellow Ochre, Aquarius Green, Sap Green and Phthalo Green. All by Roman Schmal. And then in the middle, I have Mineral Violet, I have Magenta and I have Aquarius Red all by Roman Schmal. And then the last one I have shoved in there is Green Appetite Genuine by Daniel Smith, which is completely superfluous because I already have Aquarius Green. But who can get through the day without Green Appetite Genuine? It is just the most cute colour in the universe. Now, what do I do with each of them? Well, let's start with the first one. Payne's Grey is brilliant for black, for greys of any hue, depends on how much water you mix with them and any dark blues. It also mixed with phthalo green. It's absolutely stunning um, for a sea colour. It is a wonderful shadow colour. It has a wonderful darkening colour. It has a wonderful hair colour mixed with a tiny dot of cypress burnt umber. Um, and very, very dilute. It can be perfect lick of sunshine um, in any situation, in cold spring weather or any situation like that. French, uh, sorry, the next one's phthalo blue. I'm getting them mixed up the whole time with French ultramarine light. Phthalo blue is, is a lovely rich blue and it is very useful for, um, well, I don't really use it very much, but it's useful anywhere you're going to need a nice rich blue and mixed with phthalo green, it gives a marvellous turquoise as well. It's all the turquoise you need. Then the next one over is French ultramarine light and that is very versatile. Um, I don't really use it mixed with, with purple so much, but I do use it mixed with... Um, 
with Payne's grey because it makes a great denim colour that way. And also mixed with phthalo blue, it makes a lovely sky colour. Now the next one is cherry quinacridone red. And this one is very, very important because I mix it with yellow ochre to make really nice skin tones for white people. So um, it depends on your concentration but and you could also use it for um, people with a little bit of a darker complexion. Um, just you have to obviously increase the amount of yellow ochre into the mix or you can use a bit of burnt sienna into the mix as well. But the thing about cherry quinacridone red is it gives a lovely warmth in, in any skin tone at all. It's not a bright, shocking pink. It's not a cold pink. It's a very warm, delicate pink. So it's really invaluable when it comes to skin tones. Took me ages to find that that color. Roman was sending me all kinds of pinks and reds and it was only when he sent me that one I was like that's the one I want he kind of knew actually he was like I know the one you want before he sent it to me anyway next to cherry quinacridone red I have Aquarius orange which is just the most gorgeous clear burnt orange oh I love that color it's absolutely beautiful I use it for so many things I use it for brickwork I use it for people with red hair I don't know I use it for loads of things um I also use it mixed with any reds because I'm not crazy about just red left flat on a page. So I like to break it up a little bit with some Aquarius orange. Then the only full pan I have in my set is Quinophthalo and yellow. And the reason is I use that yellow. Oh my goodness, I think I've gone through two full pans in the last year anyway. Um, the reason I choose that particular shade of yellow is because I mix it with phthalo green to get lime. I mix it with Aquarius orange to get a sort of a tangerine colour or a sunshine yellow. Um, what else do I mix it with? I guess I mix it with yellow ochre and then make it very dilute to make a honey colour for buildings. And um, I mix it with all my greens to change the colours of my foliage. So definitely it's a really, really versatile colour to have as a mixing colour. And of course, it goes without saying, um, use neat, it's absolutely brilliant as well. And then onto the other row, we have Cypress Burnt Umber, which is brilliant in skin tones and it's brilliant in um, hair colours. It's also brilliant mixed with Payne's Grey for really nice warm grey. So I recommend that there. Then we've got uh, Burnt Sienna. Oh, and also I find that Burnt Umber is invaluable when it comes to um, painting wood as well. The next to that, we've got Burnt Sienna Monte Amiata. I don't know what the Monte Amiata is, beef is. I've said that before, I'm sure, in the pod. But Burnt Sienna is beautiful, rich, ready brown, and it's used for all kinds of different, especially wood. It's used for wood a lot. So when I'm doing my table surfaces that are made out of wood, and they, they crop up a lot in my classes, they are um, always a mixture of yellow ochre and Burnt Sienna, plus or minus bits of Burnt Umber around the place. So um, Burnt Sienna is brilliant for skin tones as well. And it's brilliant for hair colours and brick. So it's a great colour. It's really, really good. It's any woodland picture, you're going to need your um, burnt sienna, Monte Amiata. Now, there's another one similar to that that I don't have in my sketch box, which I adore. And it's called Titanium Red Oxide. And it's by Daniel Smith. And I love it. And I have a tube of it somewhere. And I absolutely love it. But I don't have it in my paint box. So I might sneak in some one of the days. Then next to that, I have yellow ochre, which is probably the most versatile colour in your whole set. Mixed with many other colours in the brown and pink range. It makes a great skin tone. It's perfect for wood. It's perfect for... Where else do I use it? I don't know. Oh, very dilute. I use it for any honey coloured buildings as well. So I find that very, very useful. 
And then moving on to the next one, Aquarius Green. I just love it. I just love it. What's lovely about Aquarius Green is it's a very dark granulating green. And what's particularly lovely about it, apart from the divine little blue flecks when it dries, it's perfect for trees in an urban environment or any environment, particularly an urban environment where you it's not the picture isn't about the trees. You just want to fill them in in a believable way. So that's like, say, for example, a row of olive trees or something in the municipal square or something like that. So Aquarius Green is ideal for that, even if it's not the exact colour of an olive tree. It definitely looks really good and it's very effective. And the next one across is Sap Green. Sap Green is just so delightful mixed with um, yellow for spring greens, particularly, particularly. But I do love Sap Green. It's um, a beautiful, beautiful, clean, clear, lightish green. And it's just so pure. It's a real grass green. Oh, talking of grass green, I would definitely use sap green for grass, but I would always mix a bit of burnt sienna into it. Always mix a burnt sienna or a tiny bit of yellow ochre into it. You need to take that sharpness off the green to make it believable, even in the height of summer. And then last but not least, ooh, we have phthalo green. Now, phthalo green is a very dark blue green and it's transparent. And I tell you what, you wouldn't use it on its own very much unless you're painting a swimming pool or something like that, or unless you're looking for a turquoise something or other. It's very, very intense and very blue green, but mixed with yellow, it's absolutely divine. Makes a fabulous lime color mixed with Payne's gray. It makes a beautiful sea color off the coast of Cork. I always think that gorgeous sea color. Um, and what else does it mix with to make a gorgeous color? It's nice mixed with the sludgier um, greens as well. The uh, Aquarius green and the green appetite genuine. And then down the middle, we have mineral violet. I use that quite a lot these days. Partly because I just like it, um, partly because it's granulating, but I just think it looks really nice in some of your shadows. It can look fab. Let's sit in with the shadow it can look really, really amazing. Magenta is brilliant for mixing with orange to get a really nice scarlet red with a little hint of something slightly maverick in it as it swirls around. So I do love um, my magenta and I wouldn't be without it down the middle row. So the space down the middle of the paint box is supposed to be where you put a travel brush. But I personally like to put an extra row of paints in there. Now, a lot of the paint sets that I sell come with Opera Rose by D Jackson's, which I think is a Sennelier colour. Now, that's an absolutely brilliant shade of pink. It's a really hot pink and it's it suffices for um, if you mix it with Aquarius Orange, you'll get that lovely hot red as well. So magenta and that are very similar. And then Aquarius Orange was also by Roman Schmal and it's beautiful, dark, pinky, rich red. So that's very, very useful as well. And then, as I say, once more, finally, last but not least, least Green Appetite Genuine. It has the same applications as Aquarius Green, as in municipal trees or greens that you want to do a large area of, but you don't like any other shade of green, that kind of thing. So there you go. That is my paint box. The colours of my paint box. And I do supply them. The, I do supply a box of, of 12 Roman Schmal paints into which I always put an opera rose so that you can mix really hot reds because I think you need that extra one. It's always a struggle, isn't it? Can I make do with 10? Do I have to get 12? Do I have to have 24? Do I have to have 36? Well, personally, I think about 21 is more than enough. What am I saying? That's 12 plus, that's 12 plus the next, that's loads. No, not 12. Maybe, um, I'm sorry, not, not 21. I'd say more like maybe 16, something like that. Again, it depends on your paint box. You can get bigger paint boxes where you can fit all manner of colours in it. That's exciting too. I do miss certain colours. I miss not having Naples yellow in my paint box. And yeah, there's definitely a few colours that I'm missing. I might do a, 
a revamp one of these days and see what happens. But for right now, that's a fantastic range of colours because it's ideal for the urban sketcher. So my colours tend to be very, very bright um, because you can always sludgy them up yourself. Apart from my sludgy greens, everything else is quite bright. So that's the curated set of colours minus the middle row. That's the curated set of colours that you get if you buy your Roman Schmal paints through me. That is the Roshan Curé palette. So I hope that's enlightened you a little bit um, on the colours that come in the paint set and the colours that I use absolutely every day. Well, I do more than just sketch, um, like all artists or I don't know about all artists, but like many, many artists, I have other strings to my bow. Um, and I just wanted to tell you a couple of them. You guys know that I'm a comic book artist, even though that has mostly happened in my head. And I, I was looking at an anthology of comics produced by the Dublin Comics, Dublin Comic Book Festival, something like that, um, the other day. And it's, it's called Home and it's got some really, really... Uh, great stories in it, really, really well written. But it occurred to me as I was looking through it that there is nobody, <laughs> they talk about representation, there's nobody who looks in any way like me. And by that, I don't mean short and squat with red hair. No, I'm sure there are plenty of those. I mean, middle-aged woman with a family who has a slightly different take on, I suppose, life because I've got a different perspective. I'm much further along than most of the authors of the comics that are in any of these anthologies, which is kind of cool. I mean, the girl who wrote uh, Persepolis, so that's Persepolis in an Irish accent. I don't know why I think I'm so cool. Just because I um, went out with an Iranian fella for a few years um, and they pronounced Persepolis Perspolis, I think. Could be wrong on that as well. Anyway, her name is uh, Marianne Satrapi. Again, I hope I haven't got her name wrong, but uh, she did Persepolis and it's just the most magnificent book. But she's definitely middle aged by now. So fair play to you, Marianne. But um, no, I would love to. I would love to write a comic about uh, not quite sure what I'd put in it. Made the dinner again today, did a load of laundry, got quite a lot into the light coloured load, went back up again to get a second load on <laughs> Hmm, not sure anybody wants to read that one. Threw Ruben's ring for him. Let him in the door for the 15th time. <laughs> mm, I think I can probably do better. But yeah, comics are brilliant. And um, I am actually, I have another book in the planning, which is a comic book. And the next one is not going to be published by any publisher. It's going to be published by moi. And I am so excited about it. And um, I will let you in on what it's going to be be about once I have the mock-up done because if I don't get the mock-up done it's highly unlikely that I'll get any further than that first stage but I have identified um uh, I'm not gonna say publisher because it's a printer I've identified a printer that I like and I've identified a size and a style and the number of pages and I have most of the content I just need to curate it and put it together in a nice attractive way so there's that so comic books is one thing and little books. And of course, I write books, but that's not what I'm here to talk about today. I wanted to tell you about a fabulous thing that I stumbled across um, just before Christmas at the Dublin the Comic Books Fair up in Stony Batter or somewhere like that. I don't know. Don, Don Abate? Somewhere, somewhere on the Lewis anyway. 
on the in 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 the direction away from town from Houston Station because I went up to it for the day. It was great. Really, really enjoyed it. I could have spent a lot longer there. I thought I'd been in and out, but I wasn't. I and I could have spent much longer there. And I met a very fantastic young man there called Liam Liam Farrell, and Liam makes these absolutely stunning stunning stamp art rubber stamp art and he planted the seed in my mind to do something similar and one of my very wonderful students Gina was good enough to source and send me a packet of those square rubbers that you can make into stamps with a slightly uh, controlled hand and a liner cutting tool so I did buy a scalpel for cutting into the stamp. In my naivety, I thought that um the scalpel would be the perfect job to cut my patterns into the stamp. But no, you will only make an absolute mess of the stamp that way, of the rubber surface. So in the end, I used a lino cutting tool that I happen to have in the house. And I've been having terrific fun carving shapes into these, into these rubbers. Now, the brand is Milan. I think. And the rubbers are square and they're about an inch by an inch. So they're very small. But for some reason, Liam makes his look absolutely astoundingly incredible. He goes under cardigan coots, cardigan uh, underscore coots um, on Instagram. So you need to check him out. He's amazing. Uh, I also met the wonderful Rain Booth, by the way, at the same comics festival. And it was Rain's work in her fabulous production, uh, her fabulous uh, graphic memoir or graphic novel called Love that made me think, hey, do you know what? I could actually do something along these lines in terms of the book that I've been planning in my mind for such a long time. So there you go. Rubber stamping, rubber stamping for, for joy and pleasure and comic booking for joy and pleasure. And today I did a birthday card for a good friend of mine and this time I used acrylic gouache for much of it. So there you go. Acrylic gouache for joy and pleasure. There's all kinds of wonderful things. And um, for the birthday card, I was mo- mostly sort of out of my head, but I based it on a sort of a scholar in a Renaissance painting. And then I used the Book of Kells as inspiration for some of the um, fancy sort of detail work around in the background. So nothing to do with sketching whatsoever. So there's lots of, and lots and lots of things that I do other than urban sketching and it's all to be enjoyed and had fun with um not so inclined to work from photos not really doesn't seem to work so well for me but um i'm sure that there are instances when i tell you when i use photographs if i want to draw an animal and i just want the shape of the animal um and the proportions i'll definitely refer to say an orangutan or something like that and uh, just so that I'm not completely crazy with my shapes. So there you go. And the last thing I do, which I have huge joy and pleasure from, are my large canvases. And I do those in acrylics and I use Posca acrylic uh, markers with them. And I have huge amounts of fun. They really are big canvases and I have a massive easel in my studio. So there you go. I do lots and lots of fun things and not just sketch from life. But this podcast is all about sketching from life in general and the therapy that is to be had therein. So I encourage you to do all kinds of fun things art wise and uh, who knows what guise it comes in. It's all to be enjoyed. It's all creative. 
Well, that brings us to an end of another episode of Sketch Therapist. Well, what did we learn today? We learned that I can be an awful old curmudgeon, eavesdropping on people over whom I should not be eavesdropping at all. And how I am not very good at perspective, but I muddle along and enjoy myself thoroughly in the process. I've given you some tips and hints on how to choose colours for a paint set that's going to work pretty, pretty well for you. By the way, I am completely out of stock in those particular paints at the moment. I have sent a message to Roman saying, please, Roman, can I have some more? So it remains to be seen um, when Roman gets back to me. But I would like to have them in stock in the not too distant future. Of course, you may always purchase my Urban Sketchers Galway, which I don't have in stock at the moment. My Urban Sketching Handbook, Drawing Expressive People, which I have somewhere in my studio or somewhere in the house that I can't find. So I can't sell it at the moment because I can't put my hands on it. So I must take that off, off, off my stock. I do, however, have plenty of copies of Dublin in sketches and stories. And I think that's a brilliant book. I am very proud of it. I think it's brilliant and I think you really should get your hands on it. It's not just a great way to get to know Dublin City, seen through... Um, my eyes but in a very very personal way but much more than that it's a really nice story into the history of Dublin um, recounted by me through the um, the words of my brother who is an absolutely riveting historian when it comes to telling stories so I think that you'd really like Dublin sketches and stories I don't know if I've told you before but it's a great big heavy coffee table book it's well worth it it's a chunky book and it make a really substantial gift for someone you really won't be disappointed with that particular book. So there you go. Paints, books, uh, anything else? Classes. Oh, I should talk to you about my classes. Saturday and Tuesday continue apace. Saturdays, 2pm GMT. And whatever takes my fancy, whatever I think you'll like. Same as Tuesday. Tuesday at 7pm GMT. Again, whatever takes my fancy, whatever I think you'll like. And Wednesdays, Wednesday mornings at 10am GMT. When all the good folk on the west coast of the States are all sound asleep. I apologise for that. Um, But all you good people, equally good people on the east of the world in relation to where I'm sitting. So all of you in Asia and Australia, well, hopefully you might still be awake when I put on my 10 o'clock in the morning GMT class. So 10 a.m. GMT um, on a Wednesday morning. So that is also not so much um, any random stuff. I have a lovely collection of um, classes that I did an awful long time ago that were never recorded and they were very popular. So it's a kind of a selection. It's kind of a best of um, from the early days of my teaching um, teaching career, we'll say. So those ones are really, really nice as well. And they, would I say they're better for beginners? Oh, not necessarily, but it's the second time that I'll have gone through them. So maybe I do them a little bit better this time around. Um, but they're new to everybody who hasn't been with me since the very beginning. Um, and I think you like them. All my classes are 90 minutes long. They all cost six euros. They're all live. They're all recorded. They're all sent to you automatically once you book through my website. However, if you want to bargain, you can sign up for one of my memberships. You can sign up for the 19.99 per month for the regular membership which gives you access to all live classes and all recordings of those live classes and 20% off all the archived classes you can go for the deluxe model the deluxe membership which is 29.99 per month and gets you the entire archive 
at no extra cost. The entire archive for free. And there are over 90 classes. Imagine there are over 90 classes in the archive. So that could be well worth your while if you happen to think that you're going to be doing an awful lot of sketching in the near future. I'm going to be adding something exciting to the deluxe membership, by the way, because I really want to give them something extra. Then finally, you can always choose the private membership, which is an hour, an hour of my time one on one with me um, on Zoom per month. So that's where we get to talk about anything you want to do with your sketching efforts and endeavours and we'll have a good old chat and I'll give you a great critique and so on. I only have a couple of those spaces obviously. There's only one of me. So um, so those are your options and I think that um, they represent fantastic value for money particularly if you are inclined to do a lot of sketching classes and particularly if you're inclined to like me. If you don't like me you definitely don't want to get your membership because you'll be seeing a lot of me. But if you do like me then it might not be a bad idea. Okay, guys, that's about it. I really hope that you've enjoyed this week's episode. It continues to be cold and grey and miserable and wet here in Galway. I continue to go to the gym. I continue not going around the block with my little doggy. And as a result, my little doggy is getting very fat. So as soon as the weather starts picking up a little bit, I'll be back on the road, walking, walking, walking with me and my little doggy, Reuben. And hopefully he'll regain his enviably svelte figure that he's always had and has been the envy of the entire neighbourhood, I'm sure. I'm sure. In fact, there's a girl next door called, what's her name again? I can't remember. But there's a little dog next door who really likes the cut of his jib and would like to make babies with him. And she is the reason, I'm going on a rant again, she's the reason he has still not stopped peeing around the house and he's still wearing his male hygiene uh, belly wraps. <sighs> My washing machine never ends these days, lads. Maybe I'll put that in the comic book. Watched another load of dog nappies again today. I don't know. Sure, look at whatever you end up doing this week. I hope it involves art. And as always, I wish you happy sketching. <laughs>